And I'm not going to look it up because that would take us off topic. But I'm going to quickly look it up. Hello and welcome once again to It Is Complicated, the podcast where we answer every single question with It Is Complicated, including the title of this podcast, which is It Is Complicated. Hello, Dr. J. Hello, Josephine. How are you? When are you? Why are you? Which are you today? Which which am I? Which which are you? <laughs> we were just discussing that before we started recording. I will work on which which am I? Which which are you? And when? I'm... A combination of two rather out-of-context people, I think, would be the best way of doing it. But anyway, I'm Dr. J. I gave myself the job title Harbinger of Change because why not? When people let you write your own job title, get creative. And who wants to be a ninja or a rock star? Because everybody wants to be a ninja and a rock star. Harbinger of Change, there is only one. I got to give myself the gender transgressive non-binary gender queer, thanks to New Zealand. I'm also a troublemaker, as if you couldn't tell, and a hashtag queer nuisance, because branding. My name is Josephine Baird. I am an independent scholar, activist, and artist. I like to make a spectacle of myself upon the stage, and very occasionally on Instagram, where I draw funny queer people. I also like to think of myself as a queer without portfolio. If you like what we're doing, please consider helping us make more fabulous queer things happen by going to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash it is complicated, all one word. But today's topic, dear listener, you'll be glad to know, is very, very simple and is about bondage. Or bonding. Bonding, bonding, bonding sorry, bonding. Bonding. <laughs> bonding. I was kicking around ideas and it's about how we make networks of queers, how we make networks of non-queers, and what are the things that we have to navigate around those. And... One of the things that I said was that it's easy to make networks with queers because we're like, oh my God, the world sucks and fucking hates us. Let's bond. Apparently is some kind of queer theory bit. This is the basis of certain queer theory. In fact, I heard Judith Butler expound on this notion. She made the claim that the universal, almost universal trauma of being subjugated and repressed and violently oppressed, queer communities can come together. On that basis, I was in the position of writing a critique of that particular lecture. I think of some of the best relationships that I've got with queers, and a lot of them are formed of sitting in smoking areas or sitting in bars or sitting over coffee after we're meeting up the next day after meeting in a bar to talk about kind of how crap the world is against us or a particular crapness that somebody's dealing with and offering support, advice, help, shoulder to cry on, a venting space, whatever, around a particular thing that is oppressing us in a way that other people just don't quite seem to get. I think you've got a point that there is a common experience that we can come together over. We have a shorthand with each other. We don't have to constantly educate and explain when we get mispronounced and we have a common experience and we can bond over that. What I think is interesting about that bonding process that you describe, you know, meeting somebody at a club, well, you would probably have gone there because you're seeking your 
peers, your community, who are harder to discover just wandering around the place. Mm. And what I think is interesting for me, and again, this is as a social psychologist and as a queer theorist and a gender studies person, is to look at the ways in which we form those relationships, that relationality, if you will, for a longer word, it means the same thing, um, because <laughs> that's what we do. In forming those relationships, we do it in such a markedly different way to what would be considered the societal usual. I'm not going to use the word norm or even majority, because I don't think it is, but in something you mentioned before, Jay, in a straight, so to speak, environment, one forms relationships in a very prescribed way. People know this to the point that when it fails, they have to come up with whole new systems in order to make it work and to somehow deal with that lack of ability for some people to make those relationships in that way. Whereas you and I have talked about how we find it easier to be unusual in our approaches to making bonds or to making connections that we don't feel we're constricted by those usual patterns because of course we can't be constricted by that because if we did we'd never meet anyone Mm. (laughs) because we're not out and about in the same way as others might be one does not meet one's queer as fuck partner at the water cooler at work it's (laughs) unlikely to be there right it's much more likely to be at a doctor who convention or at the (laughs) queer bar down the street or in a peer support network or through an internet forum these are the places we're going to have to look for those things. That's an interesting step. And I think you've described that before. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on that now, because I want to come back. I want to go on to things like kinship and family formations and transactions and all the other stuff we've talked about. But I know you have a, a perspective I think on this. I've found it interesting to take my style of approaching network connections into the straight world, because I confound people by the way that I do it making straight friends has never been that easy and yet I just approached them the same way as I would queer friends and realized probably the same mode works but it takes a little bit of shift on my mind to make that mode work because we don't get the same things in quite the same way I still find it very difficult to do the classic networking because once you get beyond the superficial even with me, when you hit the superficial, so what's your job title? And I say, Harbinger of Change. And they say, no, but really. And I'm like, yes, but really. And at that point, it's kind of like, oh, I'm not even going to ask why you've got a they badge or anything like that. I'm just going to find somebody else to talk to because you're too interesting. It's that thing of like, oh my God, that person's completely unpredictable. There's a, God, I'm an academic, aren't I? So for example, there is research on, and this is a bit depressing, but of course, the ways in which violence happens. And the example that I often use in order to describe this notion is the social script, which allows violence to happen in certain circumstances. For example, if you are in a pub and you happen to be someone who is read as male or masculine, another male masculine type who wants to have a fight with you, um, you know, um, God, this is so hard with gender. Gender is weird and complicated. You, a bloke a, wishes to pick a fight. All right, a quote bloke will go into a pub and want to seek a fight. Will approach someone they believe is another bloke, and they will say the following thing: "Are you looking at my bird?" To which there is no correct answer. If you say no, I'm not, he will insist that you were and start the fight. If you say yeah, what of it? Also, will lead to a fight. If you say 
Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I was just considering the multitudinous focus of Hamlet as a play in a play in a play in a play. I was just thinking of Shakespeare, dear boy. You would make an excellent Hamlet. Have you ever thought about treading the boards? And if you said that thing to the person, they would immediately go, oh, dear God, who the hell have I just met? Walk away. Yes. Because what you've done is broken the social script and this can be used as a survival mechanism it can be used if you recognize what it is you can navigate it and i wrote a paper about queer kinship and queer family formation and navigating certain social scripts but especially laws in the european union of how families can be forged depending on who and what you are by understanding these rules and having the opportunity to move between them one can be a parkour runner <laughs> through these social scripts unfortunately as queer people we are required to be parkour runners through these social scripts in order to survive which is why the relationships that we form can look very unusual and there is research on this of course because queer kinship research is fascinating and it is also about survival often it is about creating new social scripts, about finding each other in unique ways. There's a rich history of the ways in which queer people have communicated with each other in language formation, in uh, fashion and style, and literally sending signals with said fashion and style, creating whole new languages. Uh, Polari in, in England and London specifically, I'm thinking of here. But those scripts, that language, that communication have to be navigated with significant flexibility and that is really really difficult because it proves two things one that they are by far not universal and therefore they are not set in stone and two if you're not following them you look really weird and you do things that people don't understand so as jay said one of the things that jay's going to do is to navigate relationship formation kinship formation, working with people in different ways in such a way that confounds <laughs> the straight people that they come into contact with on a regular basis. I do things that I would naturally do for my queer family that seem to confound other people. I think some of it's around the closeness of the bonds that we form so quickly. I'm used to forming very fast, close bonds, and that's not quite the standard straight way because I'm used to doing that so quickly with queers. It's not forming fast because we want to form a fast bond. It's forming fast out of necessity. Actually, that is the difference. It's the depth of our conversation. So, yes, we've met three times in the smoking area in the last two hours. We are now discussing the depths of our sex lives, the dreadful thing that happened at work today, the relationships with our parents, this complicated thing that's going on in our lives. We are deep in that discussion. Oh, and by the way, have some added queer theory and a little bit of drunkenness. That's the thing. It's that depth of relationship. And that's what confounds me with straight relationships. They don't go as deep as quickly. As Jay says, these connections are made quickly, they're made instantly, and they're not based on that sort of social discourse, that small talk that you find in non-queer environments, I think. I don't like to make these sort of generalizations because, of course, that is a generalization, but these social scripts are provably existing because there is research on them, as I said. I've had to learn the social script in much the way Josephine learned social scripts. By rote. 
this is maybe also the reason why I make social connections in a slightly different way, is the neuroatypical social interaction is very, very different. I don't understand small talk. I never have. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. So I'm like, oh, the weather's nice, isn't it? It's like, and? Yes, <laughs> I, I sensed it as I left the house. That's why I'm wearing the clothes I'm wearing. You too have seems to have sensed it and I felt the need to tell me. I'm not offended. I'm just confused as to your need to do that. And to use Douglas Adams again, he made a point about this too, that humans are curious people. They seem to need to state the blindingly obvious over and over again. Like, you're very tall, aren't you? <laughs> nice weather we're having. You seem to have fallen down a 50 foot well. Are you all right? <laughs> These things are blindingly obvious. Why do you need to state them? I think Douglas Adams may have been neurotypical. I relate to this notion very much. This notion of coming to a very quick, deep and pertinent and relevant relationship is based, I think, as you say, on necessity. When you're in that bar and you're meeting someone queer, this is one of the very few opportunities in your regular day when you can talk about things that other people can't talk about. You can't have that conversation over the water cooler. So when they're going, oh, did you watch Breaking Bad last night? Yeah, well, I also went out and was mispronounced. It made me feel weird. But, you know, I was out there with my girlfriend and she's super queer as well. And, you know, we kind of caused us to feel a bit uncomfortable. So we went home and we met up with our queer family and had, a, you know, a gay old time. This is not the conversation that's going to lead to much discourse. This is a conversation <laughs> that's going to lead to people walking away from you going, yes. Walking away from you, running to HR going, Josephine's talking about sex again. So of course, those social scripts exist in our communities as well, but they have a slightly different flavor. And I think this opportunity to have a real conversation with someone who might have a similar experience to your own is extremely enticing. And therefore, we seek those opportunities out. But of course, because we are communities of people like anyone else, those social scripts can form very quickly and they can also become quite exclusionary. Hmm. And I think that that's a real problem because that can be based on this in and out group as well. We do struggle with self-worth. And when somebody hmm. shows attention in us, this makes us bond very deeply. But this is also one of those areas where we can be quite vulnerable. Well, that's how I run but it can leave you vulnerable, as, as mm. Jay says. And so there is an element of that queer bonding process that also needs, I think, an emphasis on boundary setting and self-value and being really careful. The reason we form queer kinship and family networks is because, of course, we often lose so much of our family simply by being different and coming out and being honest about it. Thus, we have to form new connections. And we know that those connections are not based on the biological blood relationship we have and has everything to do with the social function that you perform. So I have queer siblings. I have queer parental figures. I have queer people who consider me a parental figure themselves. I am getting older, not necessarily wiser, but to some people I've been considered, I know already, and it disturbs me slightly, but it's okay, a queer elder of sorts. And that creates a familial relationship. I'm thinking here also of Auntie Kate, Kate Bornstein, a renowned and rightly so well-known trans activist, writer, and scholar who is known somewhat universally to those in the know as Auntie Kate, because she really is there for us in that respect. And she seems to universally provide that care to a great number of people. And I know that she's touched a lot of lives. I know that my queer familial relationships to me are as important as any other kind of familial relationship I may have 
lucked into being born into. The family that I've made with Effie, my partner, her children have accepted me in a way that I have never really been accepted by a partner's family before. So actually I was completely confused as to what to do. And so weirdly enough, when the familial dynamic did not happen in that way, I was utterly confounded. I mean, I am supposedly a queer elder because I'm now old enough to join all the older queer clubs now being over 50. But one of the things that I've found is I end up with nicknames like Quunkle and things like that. And people will come to me and ask my advice or ask how to do something or want to chat through something because there's a sense of being there, done that, which I always used to joke with people. I'm the sort of uncle that turns up drunk at the wedding, continues to drink the sherry, despite being a non-drinker, continues to get drunk, dance horribly, and then ambles off into the night, roars off in a sports car and is not seen again for another six months. <laughs> Josephine is just looking so I'm, perplexed. I'm just, it sometimes amuses me that your self-image of yourself is so completely opposite to mine <laughs> that I just think, well, who's this person? Your image of yourself or your image of me? Image of you, the way you describe yourself. I'm like, no, you're not. First of all, you don't drink. Secondly, you're incredibly polite and you would never make inappropriate advances to people unless you knew they wanted them, in which case you would most absolutely do that. But because you knew that they were interested, you also wouldn't roar off into the middle of the night never to be seen again. You'd leave your fucking phone number and your business card and your LinkedIn and you would say, get me on Facebook, darling. See you later. Love you. My name's Jay. And you. You know what I'm saying? So I just think it's funny that you would describe yourself that way because I think what you've done is described yourself in a very straight narrative. That's how you might be seen because that's yes. the only image for that person in that narrative. Whereas yes. in a queer narrative, it's like, no, you're not. <laughs> the first version is how straight people tend to see me. And the inappropriate comments is kind of me going, you look fabulous to pretty much everybody and chatting to people and getting into deep conversations within 10 minutes of meeting somebody because that's not normal for the straight world. And I think that's where this swings around to is like when you're queer, we spend so much time being shut on by the patriarchal hegemony that we exist in. We see other queers and we instantly try and connect we instantly attempt a connection and that connection will sometimes go very deep, very quick. Now, whether it lasts is completely besides the point. You've formed that really deep connection. So it doesn't matter if the connection is temporary. It was the connection that was needed at the time. And I can think of several examples of my own in those circumstances. I think perhaps by being forced to make different relationships at different times and especially very quickly or being very open to certain people or certain communications, it means that you are more open to those connections, which means that you can make those quicker or you can make them more often. And as you rightly say, there's sometimes those connections need to happen on that basis for that amount of time and then it's over. This is where I can see us going into areas of how this touches onto notions of non-monogamy, onto queer kinship and family formation, things like that. And I really want to reserve those topics for other times because I think they deserve their own focus. But I really am very interested in this notion of the mental headspace it creates 
being required to make those kinds of connections so regularly in such an unusual way. It means that we can function in different ways, but it also means that we're vulnerable in different ways. It also means, of course, that we are going to have difficulties in environments where those things are not the the norm. And for me personally, somebody who's also not neuronormative, that's doubly so. <laughs> so you've got the combination of not just being queer as fuck, but also being neuronormative, mm. having to figure out social cues as a minefield. So it's much easier for me to be really, really, really direct. And having learned finally the confidence to do that, because the problem is, if you then on top of that in an environment where you don't know if you can be that direct, if you don't know if you'd be that comfortable, you have to learn self-confidence, you have to learn that self-valuing, that those quick abilities to form relationships, to avoid small talk, to get to the core of the issue, to make that deep connection can be a real superpower. But in order to get to that point, <laughs> one has to have the opportunity to form those relationships, to meet those queer people that one can meet and to have those forums, you know, to be able to do that. And I think that that opportunity, as well as that time and space is really critical. And so many people don't have that. And that's what I think of when I swing back around to that notion of trauma or oppression being a potential site for common experience. It's like, yeah, for those of us who can get out and talk to each other about it. For the rest of us, we, we need more spaces. We need more opportunities to make these dynamics. And we need a breakdown of the normative notion of a social script that follows and flows a certain way. I totally agree. And I think of the way that I've seen the Queer House Party crew bond. Even within queer environments, I don't believe... I have been accepted quite so quickly and drawn into a group quite as fast as the Queer House Party group to the point where actually I felt a little bit of whiplash. (laughs) I was like, like, okay, I was a captioner for one event and I felt like, well, I'm sort of here. Hi, I'm in the corner. Just ignore me. I'm okay. To suddenly being like, right, come in and talk to us. This is what we're doing. Everybody, Josephine's here. (laughs) I'm like, really? Am I? (laughs) I loved it. It made me really, really happy. So I would love to hear what you're about to say about that formation because I wasn't there for the initial formation. It's formed like that right from the start. Everyone was just always exactly the same way as with Josephine of like, Hey, Jay's here. Fantastic. And you come sit down and it was just the most welcoming ways. And it's been one of the things that's actually started me to look at the practices that they have and start to reflect those on the teams that I work in. And a lot of it's about making space for people ensuring that everybody gets heard. And one of the biggest things that I found is just endless positivity, even when things have gone wrong. You've boiled this down to the six-word phrase that I really, really like. Be kind, presume the best, empathize. Once you do that with every interaction, you just get so much further, so much faster. I see the Queer House Party as being so much of a source of that notion, but also being the proof of that notion. They're doing exactly the things that I wrote about. And how can I talk about this more? How can I talk about this wider and get this same practice reflected more? And that's an interesting idea, isn't it? In terms of taking something that we've learned very much in a queer environment and trying to bring it out into every environment. And for example, I've always said that the BDSM notion of relational 
consent discussions and negotiation should be the form of basis of every relationship that you have, especially romantic ones, because it's such a good way of communicating and establishing your boundaries and what you're okay with and what you're not and how you can communicate discomfort and when you can communicate comfort. I think that's a really, really good form of communication and social discourse. And in this case, I think this notion of queer validation of seeing everyone as trying their very best, sometimes in very trying circumstances, and being very aware of the impact of that circumstance on someone's behavior, on someone's abilities, on someone's mood and interaction, that we can know that we're not always going to be on our tip-top level because we all live in this horrific environment that constantly forces us to have to work hard just to survive. Having that awareness allows for a sense of kindness and a sense of empathy, a sense of presuming the best of others. That eases that social discourse in such a way that you can form those deep, quick, incredibly valuable connections to create quite amazing social spaces for other people, which is what Career House Party has literally done by making that connection in that group. We, I keep wanting to say they, we... <laughs> Because I feel included in other environments that would have happened over months and I would have felt really uncomfortable saying we. I feel like I'm almost required to say we by this group. <laughs> it's like they'd be upset with me if I didn't say we. It's like we have created this massive we-ness of this community who can just come together and connect in a space and time where connecting is really difficult because of the COVID-19. It means that social discourse is much more complicated and it's forcing everyone whether they're straight, gay, queer, whatever, to form these dynamics in new ways. It's broken the social script. So weirdly enough, I think queer dynamics may be a solution to a current very, very difficult problem. I was like, why don't we take some of the queer stuff that we do and take it into business? I can actually see a spot for it. And that's been a lot of what I've been trying to do. A lot of the stuff that I talk about is queer practice. Because like that, description of the two versions of me within a social situation they're both describing exactly the same behaviors one is coming from a very straight lens and one is coming from a very queer lens which I do kind of like trying to get the straight world to kind of see some of the queer stuff and use those same techniques and use those same techniques into how we build something going forward together I was thinking of those occasions when that does not happen even within our community because it's very easy to sort of be utopic about mm how the queer community can work. Yeah, so dear listener, when we say this, we are aware, of course, that there are elements of our queer world who most certainly do not do this and can even benefit from this notion and twist it and even warp it into something that it was not intended to be and use these rules somewhat against others. You know, this insistence on, we've talked about this in other episodes where I've said, well, if there's a social contract that made me feel like I had to do certain work for free, otherwise I wasn't a good queer, or I had to do certain things in a certain environment, be available in a certain environment, be vulnerable in a certain environment, do emotional labor in a certain way, because that was the good queer thing to do. And what I didn't realize was that the person was benefiting from that and was not doing the same for others. And that story, I'm pretty sure, is something that a lot of people might be able to recognize. Because, of course, that happens in every environment. But in a queer environment, there is a particular kind of flavor because there is this sort of notion of queer way of being, of a queer relationality. Like what Jay said, in the best worlds, 
one can be there for someone else, be vulnerable quickly, be deep quickly, can offer things quickly. The exchange is done very quickly. We all understand that we're poor as fuck, so we're often giving things very easily to others, which is a wonderful quality. But of course, it is an opportunity to be abused. And I unfortunately have experienced that. And on top of that, being neuroatypical means that happens as well. And it really frustrates me because it took me a while to realize that. And then, of course, you add on top of that, that unfortunately queer people are put in a position where they're often devaluing their sense of self, which makes it even more possible for you to be exploited and treated badly. There is no utopic notion that on paper, if citrus paribus is in the economic sense, if everything else is equal, this would be a really good way to be. But of course, it isn't always equal and almost never is equal. So we have to be a little bit mindful when we say that, I think. And I don't mean to bring it down. And I honestly think that the queer way of connecting has given me a tremendous number of uniquely meaningful relationships that I would never have had in any other circumstance. But I want to be really careful with that notion anyway, just to make sure it doesn't gloss over some of the problematic dynamics it can create. There is this normative social script that casts certain dynamics as the way that it is done. Like so many things, you know, this is the way that things should be done. And therefore it is very difficult to break that script. It is very difficult to form dynamics in a different way. You alluded to it earlier when you were talking about how gender can confuse that tremendously. You know, I saw just recently some tweet that went viral about people shouldn't have friendships with the opposite sex because sex gets in the way. And then, of course, one can deconstruct that notion first of there is no such thing as opposite in sex or gender in any other sense, because that would imply there are only two and that they are somehow in opposites. And secondly, you've used sex, that word, two different ways and mean two different things, which, of course, complicates the issue and betrays the notion that you haven't really thought this through. But it is a really good indication of this discourse, this script, that people cannot be in a relationship with someone that they would potentially have a romantic relationship with as well. Of course, that's bullshit. Secondly, when you enter into a queer environment where gender is multiple, that concept flies out the window as well. But there is that normative script that I think we're all aware of. By altering that script, we can allow for a greater variety of connections, a deeper, more valuable set of connections, I believe, and therefore a good thing. But they are also susceptible to being abused and being misused. I think we should be really, really careful when we laud certain breaks of that script so that they don't become new scripts that become the norm. Instead, the norm should be the lack of prescribed script. This is completely normal behavior. For, <laughs> for a given value of normal. <laughs> yes, for a given value of normal. <laughs> All right. I think we've gotten to a good spot, don't you? Yes, I think so too. Right. Thank you, Dr. J, for this wonderful example of bonding and relationship formation and discussion. And I think for me, obviously, is basically the meaning of life, connecting with other human beings and forming those relationships and discovering yourself and each other. I think it's really the only reason to be alive. Yes. So I'm going to do a segue 
Ooh. with that connecting with people is the only reason for being alive. If you want to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter. Place it's, where it's, normative social interaction <laughs> most certainly does not happen. You can come and see us there. Interesting. Interesting yeah. stuff. COVID fucking up everything. As much as JK Rowling does. So is that who we should talk about next week? I'd rather not. <laughs> conversation has been about queer bonds and queer bonding and things like that there is a thing called the transgender day of remembrance and there are usually physical services and because of lockdown we can't have those we can't go and light candles and remember mourn the dead fight like hell for the living it is the day to turn around and go there are people who are being killed because of who they are and simply because they are trans and usually trans women and usually trans women of color this is a day for memorializing those people for memorializing people from our community who we may not have known and this year we're doing some of that online because we're forced into that with COVID and I'm being involved in the same way that I am with Queer House Party of running the tech for it so there will be stuff up we will put it up on our Twitter This is not saying you have to attend because it can be a grueling event. It can be something that is very triggering. It can be something that makes people very upset. But it is one of those things of if you're able to, if you feel comfortable doing so, attend one of these services and really understand what it means to be somebody of this community, what it means to be part of this community. And are you okay with that? You look kind of sad of there for a second. Well, because I was so sad. And it's a traumatic event in itself. It's a traumatic event, noting traumatic events. Mm. It's a personal decision for so many trans people to decide whether or not they're going to attend of a year. It is a time for recognizing what's happening, mourning those who've gone, but also trying to speak up for an issue that should never, ever be happening. It's complicated, painful, difficult, hopefully a moment for people to come together and find some comfort in each other's presence. It's an attempt at that. It's deeply sad. That's why I'm sad. But they're always very difficult. The six days leading up to Trans Day of Remembrance has been called Trans Awareness Week, and I find the majority of the posts that I've been seeing that recognize that week have been attempts to present supportive messages of trans euphoria, trans empowerment, trans representation that has made me feel really good. And so Mm. maybe I am trying to see this as not just a single day, but a whole event of days that allow us to reflect on the breadth of our experience so i know that jay you're involved with an online event on on the friday the 20th 20th. yeah Um, i imagine we'll put a link in the description of the podcast you're obviously very welcome to join and i wish everyone who does join the very best and all of my queer love I know that Jay, 
think I can speak for you and say the same. The reason we're sad is because it's sad. Mm. That's that's why I'm sad. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>